the Ibogaine journey seems to help patients to gain insight into what's been, you know, what's fueled the addiction. So it's almost as if they're watching a video of their life and they may relive early childhood experiences. They may have pleasant memories. They may see scenes from things that occurred while they were using drugs or alcohol that were unpleasant memories, but they're not disturbed by them because they're watching this video, this life review, if you will, from the standpoint of a passive observer. This information that patients report seemed to help them to set the resolve to make change, to bring about behavioral change, to change it up. You know, what's going to be different this time? Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. Psychedelic medicine is transforming mental, physical, and spiritual health, and entrepreneurship will be key to expanding access. Business Trip explores the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. This week's guest is Deborah Mash, founder and CEO of Demerex, a company developing ibogaine therapies to treat substance use disorders. Ibogaine is the naturally occurring psychoactive chemical in iboga, a West African shrub that has traditionally been used in healing ceremonies and initiations in West Africa. Ibogaine is an incredibly powerful psychedelic, and its potential to break cycles of addiction and depression has been documented in studies as well as anecdotally in clinics throughout the world. With this past year seeing the highest number of drug overdoses ever in America, the race is on to get Ibogaine FDA approved. Deborah, who founded Demerex, has studied the compound since 1993, so you could say this has become her life's work. In today's episode, we talk about the science of Ibogaine, its safety profile, navigating the mazes of the U.S. drug regulatory system as well as intellectual property, and Deborah's three-decade journey through Amsterdam, Miami, and the Caribbean to get Ibogaine approved. Oh, and as always, don't forget to listen to the entire episode, past the credits, for your sonic microdose of the day. And now, to the episode. So Deborah, really excited to uh, have you on the podcast today and talk to you about Demerex and Ibogaine and your, your story. My first question is, can you talk to us about ibogaine in terms of its history and the science behind it? Ibogaine is an indole alkaloid isolated from the roots of Tabernanthia boga, an African shrub that grows in the regions of Gabon and Cameroon. There is over a hundred years of ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology behind this molecule. And of course, in Africa, it is used as a sacred medicine by people who practice the Bwiti religion. It was actually marketed in France after it was developed and studied in Europe as a natural product chemistry formulation and was marketed up until the middle 1970s under the trade name Lamborghini. Lamborghini was tablets of Ibogaine, eight milligram tablets that contained Ibogaine and some other indole alkaloids from the root, but primarily Ibogaine. And this continued for a number of years, and then it fell out of clinical use. 
In the 70s, at the time when psychedelics sort of found their way into general use in society, Ibogaine too was discovered. And a young heroin addict by the name of Howard Lutzoff took Ibogaine to experience the molecule and discovered that he was completely clean from his heroin addiction. In fact, he kicked his heroin addiction without any of the harmful pain of withdrawals. And not only did he have complete blockade of withdrawal symptoms, but he also didn't have a craving, so the desire to go back out and get high. Now, this was an astonishing observation, as you can imagine. So he decided to replicate the experience and this time gave the drug to six of his friends. Some of them were heroin addicts. Some of them also were freebasing cocaine. And he discovered that Ibogaine had the same effect on those friends who were opiate dependent, that they too were able to kick. And the other observation was that even in the the cocaine abusers, that they had reported to him that they had a diminished need to go out and get high on cocaine again. So that was really the first observation of Ibogaine in clinical use. And that seminal discovery has fueled this movement until today. Howard Lutzoff died in 2010, but I knew him very, very well. I had met Howard and he invited me to come to Amsterdam back in 1992 to see with my own eyes. And it was interesting because at that time he was running, participating in what was called an underground railroad of addicts helping addicts. So these were two groups, the International Coalition of Addicts Self-Help and the Dutch Addicts Self-Help Movement. So people in the United States and people in the Netherlands who were were coordinating self-help for people who wanted to get clean from drugs. And I had been working, I had been studying the cocaine epidemic. I was on the faculty at the time at the University of Miami School of Medicine, and Miami, Florida was at the front end loading of the cocaine epidemic. So I was actually studying the effects of cocaine on the brain and behavior. Miami-Dade, Florida, we were really, we were really hurt by cocaine because of the transshipment of cocaine through the Caribbean into the shores of Miami. You can imagine that we had a lot of people that got caught up in that epidemic very early on. So I was looking for ways to break the cycle of addiction. And there was a movement at the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the time to try to find molecules. And, you know, pharmaceutical companies, Big Pharma has never invested and medication development for the treatment of addiction. Why? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of ideas about this, but you know, treating addiction is hard. There's a stigma associated with addiction, and of course, big pharma needs a big blockbuster drug because the cost of medication development for any central nervous system disorder, of which addiction is an acquired disease of the brain, costs money. And we're talking tens or hundred million more than $100 million to bring a drug all the way through phase one, two, and three and getting an NDA approved for sale of the drug. So Big Pharma never was really that interested. And we, in my laboratory at the, at the University of Miami, began to hear about began, and I heard about it three times. And the third time I heard about it, I had come back from a scientific meeting, the College of the Problems on Drug Dependence, And there was a phone message for me because Howard Lutzoff called me actually 
wanting to use some of my research to support one of his polydrug dependency patents. Lutzoff had patented Ibogaine for opioids, psychostimulants, nicotine, alcohol, and he was going for his fifth patent, polydrug. And I had been working on people who were co-abusing cocaine and alcohol. I was getting a lot of press at the time for my research. And Lutzoff called me and said, I want to learn about what you're doing. And I asked him, I said, you're Howard Lutzoff. You work with Ibogaine. I want to learn about Ibogaine. And that started me on my journey. Quite an origin story. Can you talk a bit about the neuroscience and what Ibogaine, or I guess noribogaine, which is the metabolite of Ibogaine, is doing in the brain? When we began studying Ibogaine, there was a suggestion that Ibogaine was working on certain parts of the brain that were involved in the addiction loop. And the neurobiology of addiction was really just starting to come of age in the field of neuroscience. And I am a neuroscientist, so I'm very interested in trying to understand what the molecular targets are for Ibogaine and what the addiction circuitry is in the brain and what chemicals are cross-talking with each other. Today, I'm not really sure we understand all of the biology behind the molecule. And as with other psychedelic medicines that are primarily serotonergics, we understand that there are certain respective targets, but we also know that there's probably downstream effects that may involve actual changes at the cytoplasmic level inside of the cell, as well as bringing about changes in the brain that are very important for neuroplasticity. And I'm, and I'm absolutely certain that Ibogaine does this. One of the most promising therapeutic aspects of psychedelics is how they promote neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of neural networks in the brain to form new connections in response to learning or an important experience or even trauma. This is important because neuropsychiatric diseases, including substance use disorders, depression, and PTSD, are often characterized by an atrophy of neurons in the prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain involved in decision-making and executive functioning, and may result in less control of drug-seeking behavior. Psychedelic compounds like ibogaine may promote neuroplasticity to regain control of drug-seeking behavior. But we do know that ibogaine and nor-ibogaine, the active metabolite of ibogaine, which my laboratory discovered for the first time and characterized, has different targets. And it's really very interesting. Ibogaine is an indole alkaloid. And you think about Mother Nature's addicting alkaloids, cocaine, opium, and nicotine, for example. There are targets in the brain, receptor targets in the brain, and neurotransmitter systems that are implicated. One is dopamine. The other is serotonin. Dopamine is the feel-good neurotransmitter. I always like to think of it as drug, sex, rock and roll. It's the, it's what makes you feel good when you get up in the morning. You get up in the morning, you jump out of bed, that's your dopamine. You're ready to get into the game. Some people don't have that feeling in the morning when they get out of bed. Some people are low on dopamine. So this may be one of the reasons why some people become dependent on drugs and alcohol and others do not. In other words, you take that first line of cocaine, that first cigarette, that first vodka martini, that first injection of heroin, and you feel normal because it's elevating your dopamine in the brain. That's why people smoke cigarettes. They get a stimulant effect. That's dopamine. So drug liking is dopamine. But over time, when you start to use more and more of the substance, you develop what would be called a tolerance. 
That's why when you stop taking heroin or prescription opiates, you go through horrible withdrawals. You build up a tolerance. You need to take more and more of the drug to prevent you from going through withdrawal. With cocaine, the withdrawal syndrome is not the same as opioid dependency, but there is a withdrawal syndrome nonetheless. And of course, with alcoholism, when severe alcoholics go through withdrawal, they can suffer terrible withdrawal and seizures, in fact. So this shows us that the brain has become neuroadaptive. Now, Ibogaine blocks opioid withdrawals because it's not only acting on serotonin, but it's also acting on what we call the NMDA receptors. And this is where ketamine acts in the brain, the same place. And it elevates the neurotransmitter glutamate. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter that regulates many different neurotransmitter systems in the brain. Ibogaine has the oniric effects, we think, because of this interaction between serotonin and the NMDA blockade, that elevation in the neurotransmitter glutamate. When Ibogaine goes through the gut wall and the liver, it gets metabolized to an active metabolite, which is noribogaine. Noribogaine is a very interesting molecule and one that has really intrigued me because it acts on three distinct targets. It doesn't act on glutamate, which is why noribogaine won't have the oniric effects, won't have the visionary experience of the ibogaine. But what it does act on is very potent as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's like an antidepressant. It also acts on the opioid system and it acts through kappa opioid receptors as a partial agonist. And when it does this, it helps to reset opioid tolerance, we believe. And then last but not least, there is a novel center in the brain called the habenula. And the habenula uses a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And through a nicotinic cholinergic receptor subtype, it puts the brakes on reinforcement, on dopamine. So it helps to reset the brain's ability to regulate itself. And we believe that Ibogaine acting on these different clusters of receptors in certain parts of the brain is why it is so effective and why it brings about this very abrupt change where it can block opioid withdrawals and have these beneficial after effects. And so that period where the brain has reset, that's for a finite period of time, right? The duration of the reset, whether it's a week, a month, three months, a year, is not completely well understood. And this brings about the issue of whether Ibogaine is a cure. Ibogaine is not a cure. Ibogaine is an addiction interrupter, a very powerful addiction interrupter. But as you can imagine that some of the patients that were treated with us in our St. Kitts study were people who had been abusing drugs, hard drugs, for a decade. Can you imagine? You take one dose of Ibogaine and you completely reset all of the damage the wreckage and the changes in the neurochemistry with one dose. As a scientist, that's hard to imagine. But we did see for some patients, one dose was actually able to get people out of their black hole of addiction and onto a road to recovery. Now, they had to work a program. For other patients, ones that maybe had been co-abusing cocaine or heroin, for example, and we had many of those as well, they might need two doses of Ibogaine. And some patients elected to come back to do a relapse prevention dose. I think that it's likely that individuals, much like you repeat ketamine treatments, 
a certain series of ketamine treatments that as we learn more about the drug that we'll be able to understand whether depending on your level of tolerance, depending on the years of abuse, and depending on your underlying psychiatric comorbidity. You know, many people who discover drugs and alcohol and use them are self-medicating. They're self-medicating depression. They're self-medicating traumas. Renowned addiction expert Gabor Mate says, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And the source of pain is always and invariably to be found in a person's lived experience. So I think there's a lot for us to learn as we embark on our clinical trials and we start to really phenotype the patients and understand the patients that are seeking to use ibogaine for detoxification. But what we can say is that for many patients whether it's one dose or two doses, whether they have to take it years later, we'll have a good understanding about what kind of effects Ibogaine will have that are lasting. But like other psychedelic molecules, you can imagine, our brain has a lot of neuroplasticity. There are changes at the synaptic level that occur. This is very important as an anti-aging tool. But you damage your brain with drugs and alcohol How much healing can you do using a medicine like Ibogaine? Ibogaine can be an anti-aging tool, you're saying? In the sense that it's turning on some of the synaptic plasticity. I see. As we age, you know, hey, if you're going to abuse drugs for 10, 20 years, you're accelerating aging in your brain. Make no mistake about it. Hard drugs make bad consequences for your brain. And there are changes at the synaptic level and postsynaptic level and the cellular level and the intracellular level and at the level of the DNA. So we've got to reset all of that. As we age, those protective, the turnover, cellular turnover, just like with, you know, turnover in your skin, your brain ages too. So we think that turning on these growth factors are part of the healing process. As for other psychedelics, and that's why psychedelic medicines truly can be transformative to the field of neuroscience. Can you describe the experience that some of your patients have shared? The oniric experience of Ibogaine for some is very profound. Patients report that when they first start to feel the drug's effect, that there is a kind of an activation of the brain. Some report that they hear a high-pitched sound, and then the screens drop and they start to get the slideshow. So it's almost as if they're watching a video of their life, and they may relive you know, early childhood experiences. They, they may have pleasant memories. They may see scenes from things that occurred while they were using drugs or alcohol that were unpleasant memories, but they're not disturbed by them because they're watching this video, this life review, if you will, from the standpoint of a passive observer. This information that patients report seemed to help them to set the resolve to make change, to bring about behavioral change, to change it up. You know, what's going to be different this time? I've detoxed before again and again and again. And I always go back to the drugs. I always relapse. What's going to be different this time? Well, that the Ibogaine journey seems to help patients to gain insight into what's been, you know, what's fueled the addiction. Going back, kind of turning back the clock and looking back, hey, how did I get here? You know, and what can I do now? And how can I be proactive in my life? What do I need to do 
so that this is not me anymore. So it, it actually even helps. We think about this and, you know, we talk about pre-contemplative, contemplative, ready for change. It takes in some patients who are intractable, you know, drug users and made them ready for change. And others, it was like rewriting their own mythology. Today, I'm not addicted. Today, I'm not addicted. Okay, so my last question on the science of it is the cardiotoxicity. It's something that seems to come up when, you know, on this topic in that for certain populations, there may be some risk to the heart. So can you talk through what percentage of the population is affected and, and why that's the case? In our study in St. Kitts, we had no serious adverse events with our patients. Patients were screened for their general medical health. We also screen them for any cardiovascular disease that would make them disqualified from taking Ibogaine. We know that hard drugs and alcohol can damage the heart. Not only does it damage the brain, it damages the heart, it damages the liver. So this patient population is at risk for drugs which can have cardiac effects. Ibogaine, we believe, has a more narrow therapeutic to toxic window. You know, if you take too much of a drug, you can have an adverse event. You need to be within a therapeutic window where you know the drug in the blood is safe and not going to have adverse events. People who have gotten trouble with Ibogaine, and there have been Ibogaine deaths reported, about 33 in the literature to date that we've reviewed, and some other case reports of what is called QT prolongation. QT prolongation is a signal in the heart that if it gets too long, if too prolonged, by blocking certain channels in the heart, drug blockade of certain channels called HERG channels in the heart, can lead to a potential serious cardiac adverse event. Demerex is working in our clinical trial to demonstrate those safety parameters. So along that sort of thread, you're pursuing FDA approval. You, as I understand it, I think you started Demerex in 2010. So you've been studying this and researching it and doing preclinical research for a while. I believe you're approaching phase two clinical trials. So please share with us the timeline in terms of where you've been, where you're at, where you're going, and any learnings you've had along the way. I first went to the FDA with Ibogaine in 1993 and gained their approval to commence phase one studies in the U.S. In 1995, I went back to the FDA with an amended protocol, and they again granted us the green light to go forward with an external data safety monitoring committee. Unfortunately, I was unable to fund those studies, which is why we left and went ex-U.S. to St. Kitts, where I started an R&D program in the Caribbean with a permission from the government of St. Kitts. And patients who would sign informed consent would come into the, the Caribbean study with us. And we did that for a number of years. During that time, we also conducted bench research and learned more about Ibogaine and Noribogaine and, and made several publications that came from that, those studies. We submitted a lot of grant applications to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. We had novel composition of matter. And every time I submitted a grant, those grants were slammed down. 
they were deemed not competitive. Nonetheless, I was convinced of what we had because seeing is believing. I saw I began work with my own eyes in 1992. I saw the powerful effects of this drug. So at that point, I had to make a decision because I didn't want to run. I wanted to get back in the United States, get back in front of the FDA. And we thought, based on our discussions with NIDA and our investors, that perhaps noribogaine was the better molecule, that the next generation molecule would be the metabolite. And we started Demerex to advance the metabolite. And the metabolite has already gone through three phase one protocols and is phase two ready, basically, at this time. So we're going to be looking at some novel indications for use of noribogaine different from what we're doing with Ibogaine. But when I came back into Demrex and I had left my company for a while, and then I came back into my company that I founded in 2017, when I came back into the company, I made a decision and I said, we're going to bring back Ibogaine. We're going to have two horses in the race and two jockeys because I want to develop Ibogaine and I want to develop more Ibogaine. And we had target product profiles for each of them. And they were different. Can you talk through the difference briefly? Ibogaine, we believe that Ibogaine, because it has oneric effects and or Ibogaine does not, is going to be the best candidate for opioid withdrawal management, that precipitating a change from being dependent on opioids, bringing about this catalyst for change, if you will, helping patients to break their intractable cycle of addiction, that Ibogaine is going to be the preferred molecule. Because not only is it very effective. And don't forget, and when you take Ibogaine, Ibogaine is not only acting in the brain, but it's also a pro-drug. It's getting converted to noribogaine. So you've got Ibogaine, which is washed out of the blood in 24 hours, but then you have the slow release of noribogaine and the slow washout of noribogaine. When we began, and I talked to my counselors and staff in St. Kitts, I said, well, we're not going to work with Ibogaine anymore. And they were, no, you have to continue, Dr. Mash, to to pursue Ibogaine because it, it is a strong, you know, because it's an adjuvant to psychotherapy because it helps patients to bring about behavioral change. So it's not just the neurochemistry. We You need the oneric effects of the drug. In 2017, I said, we need the oneric effects of the drug. But wouldn't it be wonderful if after you precipitate this change, you bring about this radical reset in the brain and you get patients treatment ready, that you could have an adjunct therapy, a low-dose formulation of noribogaine that can be taken for days, weeks, or months after you've completed the ibogaine detoxification. So we're looking at developing noribogaine in low-dose formulations, and there's some other new intellectual property around that, which I will not discuss on this call yet. We have some interesting ideas about how to do this. And then noribogaine also could be developed in low-dose formulations to help patients who want to stay abstinent. You know, we've demonstrated in animal models that noribogaine will will stop nicotine self-administration. It stops alcohol drinking behavior in rodent models. Wouldn't this be wonderful if we could help to develop a non-opioid formulation that has no abuse liability, none of the risk of abuse that will also help to act on these same receptor targets that I talked about. And so let's fast forward a few years from now. Let's say, fingers crossed, these get approved. What does the business model look like for Demerex? I suppose that by that time, the business model for Demerex will be that we will have a pharma partner. 
that a pharmaceutical partner will emerge once we're able to demonstrate the stunning efficacy. If we can replicate the stunning efficacy that people report on the internet, you know, it's estimated 10,000 people or more have taken Ibogaine in various settings around the world. Some of them not the best medically sanctioned settings, I might add, but they've taken it and they report that it provides benefit. So the, the endorsement, the patient endorsement is there, seeing is believing. The model for Ibogaine, Ibogaine should always be given in a medically safe setting because of the, you know, the one-off chance that you get someone who has underlying cardiac disease that wasn't disclosed. And you need to be able to manage patients undergoing detoxification. And it's bringing about abrupt detoxification. Think about that. People who want to transition off of methadone, it takes a very long time to taper down. Here we are, you take one dose of Ibogaine, you know, we had people that were swimming in the Caribbean three days later, completely detoxed, no cravings, and felt wonderful. So this is kind of an amazing thing. Brexanolone is a molecule that was developed, came from the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, and made its way for the treatment of postpartum depression. Similarly, I believe that Ibogaine will be used similarly to brexanolone. In other words, you have to take it under medical monitor. You may want to take it in a hospital or a particular setting where you have all of the, the medical safety bells and whistles so that you can be managed, whether it's in a, a detoxification clinic or a hospital under full medical monitor. That's how Ibogaine will be used. So it won't be like a psilocybin treatment. For noribogaine, noribogaine will be prescribed in a pill, a patch, or a depot, so your doctor will write a prescription. And it would be at a low enough dose that it doesn't have the abuse potential. Doesn't have any safety signal. It won't have a cardiac signal. It has no abuse potential. Animals will not self-administer it. Nobody will abuse noribogaine, we believe. The data is there to support this. And it will be given you know, to patients in an early recovery relapse prevention indication. Got it. So uh, let's talk briefly about your partnership with Atai. Could you talk through how you've partnered with them and the way you work together? Our partnership with Atai Life Science is very much not only at the level of funding. And of course, you have to have the commitment. You have to have the dollars for the research. You have to have the dollars for the clinical trials. And Atai has decided, given us the joint venture to allow us to advance Ibogaine to a proof of concept phase two protocol. So that was a significant advance for Demrex. Atai Life Sciences is a biopharmaceutical company that incubates and invests in companies that treat mental health disorders. Demrex is one of 10 companies they've partnered with. Quick disclosure, the psychedelic medicine syndicate that Matthias and I manage is an investor in Atai. Atai has invested over $200 million into psychedelic medicine companies including Demerex. But I didn't just want the funding. I can raise funding, and we have raised dollars in Demerex. What we needed was a strategic partner. And Atai and their experts in the company are some of the best that I have ever worked with. These are incredibly talented people who are advancing on many fronts. So they have... They have the intellectual currency that we needed at Demrex. One other question about the just the business, the business model. Could you talk about how you protect your IP? 
intellectual property is, uh, is not for the faint of heart. It's expensive. And of course, in order for investors to get their rate of return on investment, you need to protect the asset. So for the psychedelic molecules, many of them, the structures are known. And so you can't get composition of matter. You can get what is called novel use in some indications, or you can modify the molecule in some way or work up a, a fully synthetic approach to the drug that'll be used therapeutically, and that gives you new intellectual property. So there, there is a strategy, there is an intellectual uh, property strategy that people can follow. There is a roadmap that we can follow at Demerex. We were fortunate, we were able to get composition of matter around noribogaine, and we had an insolvate which we had patented, which is an invaluable asset. It's a, a different form of the molecule, so that gave us new intellectual property there. We have synthetic routes to noribogaine that we have patented, and that is an important part. So the chemistry around synthesis is important. And then, of course, there's methods of use. So, you know, how you're administering the drug, what patients, et cetera, blood levels, this all goes into your method of use IP. So we have a very robust portfolio for nor-ibogaine. Ibogaine, on the other hand, uh, is we're developing with a tie and a tie's guidance, some new IP around ibogaine as well. And so we're excited about that. Um, and we also have filed patents in, in Demerex for methods of use for ibogaine. But of course, you have prior art. As many who work in the field of psychedelic medicines know, there's a lot of prior art. So you have to get, you have to be novel, you have to be strategic, you have to be inventive, you have to make that inventive step to get that new intellectual property. But you need to get the intellectual property. And I know that there's the sort of the underground movement, people who want psychedelic medicines to be available for everyone and don't want to have the issue of ownership and intellectual property, but you can't have one without the other because you have to pay for the clinical trials. We can't get through the various stages, regulatory stages, unless we have the funds to pay for the clinical trials, unless we have the funds to manufacture GMP drug product to give to humans for human use. This is all hugely expensive. You know, many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars upon hundreds of thousands of dollars to get you to the end game. So you've got to be able to protect the asset and you've got to make sure that you have, you know, a rate of return for your shareholders. And we're, we're keenly aware of this. So in terms of your experience as a entrepreneur versus a researcher, how do you think about wearing each of those hats and have you, are you embracing the entrepreneurial side of this journey? I have always been a little bit more maverick. Even in my academic life, I started a brain bank. I had one of the largest postmortem biorepositories of human brains in the world. And I did this with a very small startup. I took some of the tools that I learned from starting the Ibogaine Clinic in St. Kitts. You can imagine, I did that without NIH funds. I raised family and friends round and set that clinic up in the Caribbean. I had people donating time. I donated all my time to that. We paid for some of our clinicians and the people who, the nurses and staff, but there was a lot of uh, skin in the game, so to speak. And that's what it takes. If you're going to be a good entrepreneur, 
you've got to be, you, you have to be fearless and you have to, you have to, if you believe in something, you have to just go for it. And that's what we did in St. Kitts. But that data that we, what we learned in St. Kitts and those, those clinical data are an important asset today in Demerex. There's no doubt that being involved as an entrepreneur, learning how to talk to investors, learning to put together a pitch deck made me a better scientific grant writer. I did boot camp with Springboard. They launched Women Entrepreneurs. It's a really great organization. And my company was picked and I was able to do, they taught me how to do an elevator pitch. And my, when I brought, when I learned that and they sharpened me up from being an academic, you know, presenting the science and I had to flip it around and be able to talk about, you know, you invest X and I'm going to give you Y. That made me a much better NIH grant writer. I was able to use those tools to sell my ideas. That's great. I love that. How one domain contributes to the other and vice versa. So you've been working in and around Ibogaine since 1993. What drives you? You know, my life has been very interesting and privileged because uh, to call myself a neuroscientist and to have been able to study the human brain and to have people support my laboratory and to have research dollars, taxpayer dollars, to allow me to do science, what a privilege, what a privilege. And when I, and it's really, you know, studying the human brain, the brain is, you know, the next biological frontier, right? So we've learned more about the human brain in the last 20 years than throughout all of human history. I never thought I would be working in the field of addiction. That was not my plan. But I, like many others who have had family members addicted, I had a loved one in my family who was addicted to alcohol. And I saw that person suffer, and he suffered greatly. So as luck would have it, you know, research led me to Ibogaine. And that's how I learned about Ibogaine was through being a researcher. And when I saw the power of the drug, and I saw what it could do, and how it could alleviate suffering, I couldn't let go of it. So even though it was incredibly hard, and there were times when I questioned my sanity. And I would have just asked myself, what's wrong with you? You know, the NIH doesn't want to fund your grants. Ibogaine is a Schedule One molecule. I had a very successful laboratory. I had a great career. Why am I pursuing this? But you can't give it up. Because when you, you know, you get one chance in life to make a difference. And I needed to finish what I started. I started this and it was time to finish there are too many people suffering. This is a great societal need. Addiction is a family disease. It doesn't only affect the individual, it affects the whole family. Today, opioid intoxication deaths is the number one cause of death for people under the age of 50. Look at the deaths. It's staggering. Look at the increased addiction during the pandemic, COVID-19. Society is getting sicker. It's harder so if these drugs, if, you know, Ibogaine fits in with this new transformative revolution of using psychedelic medicines to treat intractable depression, to treat trauma, MDMA, to help people to be able to live a normal life and a better life and a healthier life and a happier life and contribute more as members of society. 
What advice would you have for other entrepreneurs and people that want to work in psychedelic medicine? Well, advice for people working in any pharmaceutical development program is buckle up, you know, fasten your seatbelt because this is not for the faint of heart. Get ready for disappointment. Get ready for surprises because when you embark on this drug development highway, there's going to be a, a lot of detours. So you can't give up and be very smart about staging the burn. When you raise funds from investors, you use those dollars wisely. Don't make unnecessary mistakes because those, those mistakes will cost you, not only in time, which is the enemy, but also in your ability to raise additional funds for your program. You've got to work towards those milestones. Stay the course, work the milestones. In terms of the psychedelic medicines, this is a whole new ballgame. There, there aren't too many rodeos that uh, you know, we've participated in. So we're, we're all very much pioneers in this regard. But my belief is that you, you must work with these molecules with purity of intention. You have to have the highest ethical standards when you embark on developing these medications for human use. Last question. Do you think you will take it at some point in your life? I have not taken Ibogaine um, it, ever. And to date, I have never taken Ibogaine. Do I think I would take Ibogaine? Well, the reason that I haven't taken Ibogaine and the reason that I was quite strict about that in the St. Kitts study was because I think it's very important that we have an ability to study it without having the experience. I believe that. Now, I know that many other practitioners who are actually doing very wonderful research with other psychedelic medicines, and they're doing first-class studies, many of them have used psilocybin or DMT or whatever, uh, taken MDMA. Um, for me, I wasn't addicted, and the doses of Ibogaine that we had were very precious. And so, you know, I wasn't going to waste a dose either on me, because there was somebody else out there who, you know, that dose might save their life. Mm -hmm. So people would say, well, nobody will really know that you haven't, you know, taken Ibogaine, but uh, who would know? Well, that's between me and God. So, uh, you know, I've sort of set my, you know, my intention to work with this, to try to maintain objectivity and to, to always you know, present the facts and the information around this drug to the best of my, you know, my talents and ability. You know, if Ibogaine is safe and we're able to advance and conduct a pivotal proof of concept study, this would be a huge gift for Ibogaine on the road to become available to patients, so many patients who need it. And I would never jeopardize that from happening. The best entrepreneurs are gritty and relentless as they navigate old mazes and institutions that stand in the way of innovation. When you think about the hoops Deborah Mash has had to jump through to bring ibogaine therapy to market, it's kind of amazing. Getting FDA permission in the 1990s to commence phase one studies only not to find funding for those studies, so she starts a research and development program in St. Kitts with permission from the local government to study ibogaine, then unsuccessfully applies for grants from the National Institute of Drug Abuse only to come back to the United States and starts Demorex and gets funding for her company from a partner like Atai Life Sciences? <sighs> Is the definition of grit. 
and I can't think of a better way to apply her grit than to improve the lives of those fighting addiction. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics or looking to get more involved in the space, send me an email at greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. Business Trip is created by me and Matthias Arabrinsky. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s. So I, you know, I grew up with, you know, psychedelic drugs being used all around me. So I know about these molecules and I've studied, you know, I've, I've worked in the field of, a, of uh, you know, neurobiology of addiction. So I, I, know, I know about drugs. Mm-hmm. But um, so far, so good. I've never met a man or a drug that controlled me, so I don't need that again. Okay. <laughs>